We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We've got another great guest this week. It is Grandmaster, chess reporter, uh, psychology masters and lecturer Danish Boros. Danis, how how was my Hungarian there? Perfect, loved it. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us. So, Dennis, um, I've had you on my list for a while of people that are, that I've wanted to get on the show. You you appear to be pretty busy in St. Louis with chess related work. Uh, so, what have you been busy with lately? Well, I've been lecturing these days and months, and. Actually, I really like to talk about like past classics and um, and especially about the computer alpha zero. Okay, yeah, I saw that you had a recent lecture on YouTube and I sort of I saw what your conclusion is, but I'd rather let you say it than what I say it. So what was your take on alpha zero? Well, uh, as I saw the views and uh, the comments, they don't like my idea, but I still believe 
that in some ways alpha zero took the idea of tau and to a greater level. Like for example, the computer sacrifices pieces for initiative. In the past this was really unheard of. But that's I, I guess it's a huge leap forward in computer chess. Yeah, the fabled positional sacrifice. Exactly. Um, so why, out of all the grandmasters, I mean, there are many grandmasters who've uh, made sacrifices like that. Why Tal in particular? Well, Tal used, used psychology. And actually, those who are familiar with psychology knows that it's based on probability. And Tal used that to full effect. Now, the computer also uses probability which is kind of relevant to the subject because you can't really tell if something works exactly, but if you have enough data, you can guess that maybe 70% of the time you'll be winning this position. And I feel that AlphaZero uses that to full effect. So what is your... Okay, so I want to talk about AlphaZero too, but what's your basis for, for saying that Tal uses probability? Mm-hmm. Well, he, he says when uh, he commented that he wants to create a maze of complications where, where there's only one solution. And that's basically probability, saying that out of 10 tries, there'll be only, sorry, let me rephrase that. So out of, out of 10 tries, there'll be just two times that the opponent will find the solution. That's basically probability. Okay. Yeah. And I know that Tal in particular, when some people look back on his games, they say that his, his sacrifices weren't necessarily the soundest, but you felt the pressure playing him. Yes. Uh, his play is very strong. And I actually don't like the fact that they call his sacrifices unsound because a lot of the times he minimum reaches a draw. And I think that's not a bad result if you're making a sacrifice. This is true. Now, with AlphaZero, though, I would guess that I know that the neural network is a different, um, is developed a different way than other computers and that it's not as much about rote calculation. But I would still think that being that it's a computer and that it can calculate so easily, it would be less probability driven for the most part and more calculation driven. Uh, so you're saying just particularly in the instances of these sacrifices that are quickly becoming legendary, it was probability driven? Well, if we think about like a calm position, um, they don't necessarily make a move. They kind of decide that this move should be the strongest, right? Right. And after they chose the move, they say, okay, so this move is probably stronger than the other move. And we'll see down the line if it's true or not. Okay. But did I answer your question, though? Uh, I think so, yeah. So generally, you, you mentioned in this YouTube lecture that you sort of share the opinion of Hikaru, which I would, Hikaru Nakamura, which I would say is looks to be a minority opinion in that you didn't find this play to be as revolutionary as um, other contemporaries of yours and uh, chess writers? Well, 
Okay, I do admit I'm not a computer scientist, so I might be wrong in the computer part and how the computers work. But I feel that I've seen this chess before, and I think this is thought chess on a computer. Interesting. Which, which is brilliant. Don't get me wrong. It's brilliant. But, uh, but I've seen this from Tal, just Tal wasn't a computer yet. Okay, and Dennis, I know that you're a big chess historian, so where do you place Tal in the Pantheon, just for context? He's, he's in the top five oh, somewhere. Wow. Well, now, now that you've done that tease, I have to ask, who else is in the top five? Well, there's just too many great players. It's so hard to compare them. Like, I still feel that Bronstein should be among one of the best. And the reason I say that Whenever I look for an opening idea and I feel that I invented something, I look up the database and someone waves back at me from 56. <laughs> That's funny. So who and else? All, well, there's so many of them. I can't really... Okay. We, we won't put you on the spot, but, um, but you definitely have Tal on that list. Yeah, definitely Tal and Bronstein. And I, I feel that Bronstein deserves more love than, it, than he gets. Yeah, I'm currently uh, reading Jenna Sosenko's biography of him, and it's he's quite mm-hmm. a fascinating guy. Um, have you read The Rise and Fall of David Bronstein? No, but I heard from some uh, critics there that, um, yeah, Bronstein must have been a gloomy person. Yeah, but I that's... mean, I could, I, could, I could understand that after that dramatic loss. Yeah, it's a boffinic. Yeah, that's a... Definitely a takeaway from the book. And I think uh, a, lo- a lot of people who spent time in the chess world, even if they didn't know Bronstein in particular, y- you know people with a similar disposition. Yeah. Um, so- I think there's... Sorry. Uh, no, go on. Uh, I think uh, there's a new generation who loves Bronstein, and I think that's Rapport and Jabava. Oh, interesting. Have you What, what leads you to believe this? Um, any opening ideas they played, the uh, playfulness uh, and their demeanor, it's just the, lo- the love for the game and the scientific ways they look at the positions, that's Bronstein, I feel. Yeah, and those two are always crowd favorites, Jabova in particular, but Richard Rapport yeah. is also a very original player. Uh, I know yeah. that when Judith Polgar was a guest on Perpetual Chess, she highlighted him as a player who plays in a style reminiscent of her own. Um, so, yeah, it's an appealing style for the chess fans. Yeah. Just on a side note, like, I believe both have huge potential. But if you remember Morozevich, when he started working on his openings as well, he became, like, number two in the world. Yeah, yeah. He's kind of like the forebear, the 1990s version of the players we're discussing. Yeah, um, okay, and for listeners tuning in, a, a little bit more background on Dennis. So you, you grew up in Hungary, and then you made yeah. your way to St. Louis and attended Webster. Um, uh, and you're still in St. Louis, correct? Yes. Okay, and you're a full-time chess person? <laughs> yes, I'm a full-time coach, lecturer, and professional chess player, yes. Yeah, us, uh, anyone working in the chess field generally has more than one title. You have to do a little bit of everything. Um, yeah. So I know you, you've got a lot of great lectures on the YouTube channel of the St. Louis Chess Club. So what's your, do you have a formal or informal relationship with them in terms of your work? Well, that's 
both formal and informal, we have to work together. So uh, that's a professional way of talking to each other. Okay. So I, yeah, I should ask more clearly. So are you like a full-time employee of theirs? Oh, I'm a guest lecturer kind of. Okay. So you are often the resident grandmaster or? Yeah, I'm often the resident grandmaster. Yeah. Okay. And do you live in one of the houses near the, um, near the chess club or you have your own dwelling putting down roots over there? Well, I have my own dwelling, but sometimes I do uh, stay there. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it must be an amazing place to live in terms of just all the great players and chess legends that pass through. Oh yeah, meeting all these players and just just in there, yeah, just meeting them is a great great thing. And seeing Kasparov live was amazing. So did you get a chance to interact with him at all? It looked like they were keeping him in pretty close quarters when he wasn't actually playing. No, I, I didn't get the chance, but just seeing him play because I missed out the time when he was still playing. Yeah, and he's got the famous sort of aura about him that everyone who saw him in his prime talks about. Did you feel like that was still in effect? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was just reading about past interviews with uh, Kasparov and Anand on their match. And even from reading that, you could feel the aura. And you could feel the same thing just now when he played recently. Good to hear. Well, I know the chess fans are all hoping that sooner or later he'll he'll make another comeback. I know he's basically closed the door on a true comeback, but even another rapid event would be a lot of fun. And I think he probably took home enough lessons from the last one where he could possibly do even better. Well, I think he's ambitious, and I think that tells it all. Yeah, yeah. You don't get to be world champion without being ambitious. That's true. So any other stories? I mean... Of all the people that passed through, are there others that you got to hang out and play Blitz with and stuff like that? Yeah, I've, I've got to meet uh, Nepomniachi, Aronian, players you don't usually get time to talk with. And they were very pleasant people, I have to say. It's always good to hear that our top representatives are uh, easy to get along with. Yeah. So you mentioned Aronian. We've got the candidates coming up. Um, who's going to win? Let's, uh, let's end the suspense right now. <laughs> uh, I think it's going to be a three-way race with one surprise participant. Okay. I really okay. believe Corona has a great shot. What makes you think that? Because his last tournament was terrible. And as theater, people would tell you if the first... Um, how do you say that? I don't, I don't like. There's a saying that if uh, the preparation fails, then the show will be a success. Mm-hmm. I'm not not sure how the saying goes though. Okay, well, I get the sentiment. So mm-hmm. you're talking about the very last tournament he played in, not not like his obviously not his last candidates. No, not not his last candidates, uh, but mostly his last tournament, which didn't go well for him. Okay, that's an interesting theory. Uh, um, so you're not a believer in the hot hand effect then? <laughs> I, think, I think it will still depend on who's the calmest. Okay, because it's interesting, especially, and we're going to talk about this a good mm-hmm. amount later, but with your background in psychology, 
I'm surprised that you would think that someone whose confidence could potentially be at an ebb based on a disappointing result would be one of the favorites to win. I could understand the extra motivation, but it's, you know, the margins are so slim between these players that if you don't just feel like you're going to crush them, I think it really can make a difference. But I, I feel that uh, Karwan is a confident guy. And I think he can do it. Okay. Because if he's confident and he calms down because of this past result, he can easily win the candidates. Okay. So I'm going to guess one of your other two that you think have the greatest chance is Aronian. Yes. Okay. Yeah. He's on everyone's short list. But why Aronian? Um, Aronian, well, he was always a world champion candidate. And if he pays attention and concentrates, he's one of the best players of our times. So I think he deserves a shot at the title. And, and to be honest, if he's in a great shape, he can just, just easily win the candidate. Yeah, I agree. Uh, who else? I think Mamed Yarov. Oh, interesting. Uh, that's, not who I, I, that's not who I would have guessed your third choice was. I mean, I know he's the number two in the world currently. Mm-hmm. So why Mamed Yarov? Well, he is a hot hand. Yes, so. he is. And, um, well, if he's, I think the same goes to all the participants. If they can stay calm while being the favorite, they can win. But if they get nervous, they might fall out of contention quickly. And how does this apply to Mamed Yarov? Um, if, he, if he gets too nervous that he's too close to qualifying for the match... Okay, so you think he's at greater risk of nerve-related issues because this is his first candidates? Yes, and um, he's just too close, and this is the first time, yeah. Okay. So for the record, the one name that I would add to that list, I think I agree with you on those three. I would... Although I think experience matters. I mean, I don't know if anyone cares about my opinion, but just in brief, I would say you can never discount Kramnik. I'd agree with you. Uh, I'm honestly, I really miss MVL. Yeah, I have to mention that that I think he deserved to be here um, among this field, especially as he was in a great shape the whole year. Yeah, I mean, it was nice that he handled not not being selected with class. Uh, it's hard yeah. to argue with Kramnik as a choice, but MVL is is higher rated. So and. I, it would have been another interesting player to handicap in this field. On the other hand, uh, I agree with you. There's always a chance of someone who nobody expects to win. I mean, obviously, we expect Kramnik to score great. but Because um, that's the way Karyakin won the last time. Nobody expected him to be a candidate to challenge Carlson and that's how he made it right and I, he can't be discounted either of course I mean obviously anyone could win but but you certainly can't rule out the person who won it last time even if it was uh could have very close <laughs> so funnily enough if someone is interested in betting and kind of guessing a surprise winner there are handfuls who can run in as a candidate and uh contender for Carlson, and I think Kramnik and Wesley so, 
can become a surprise winner if they if the other rivals decide that they should be tried at. Yeah, I, it's funny in this conversation. I forgot all about Wesley. So I mean, mm-hmm. these guys are all so close together as the ratings reflect. It's kind of silly. I can't I can't resist doing it, but it's mm-hmm. kind of silly. Like trying to pick who's going to win. It's um for a U.S. sports analogy, it's more like a baseball game where anything can happen in one game than where there's some gross mismatch. Obviously, it's do you do you follow marathon running? No, I don't. There's a famous um, person in marathon running called the Rabbit, who runs the first lap for everyone and runs the fast laps, and will obviously lose at the end because just gets too tired. Now it's going to be the same thing now that uh, everyone will run the same pace and. Everyone will look around who's trying to uh, just run past the others, and they'll try to catch up with that guy. Uh-huh. It's not. It's going to be a tactical struggle too. Yeah, I can't wait for it. So it starts March 10th. I think most listeners already know that, but we're we're closing in. So gotta. I know that it's been talked about a lot, but I'm just excited to watch it. So mm-hmm. talk about it this week, and most likely with next week's guest as well. Um, so getting back to St. Louis, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, can I add one more thing? Of course. Um, I feel if Aronian, Caruana or Mamed Yarov starts winning, then the main favorites, uh, has the best chance. Okay. Um, So you think it's important to start strong? Yes. Whoever starts strong and if, uh, the favorite starts strong, it's most likely the favorite is going to win. If everybody starts slow, then uh, the field evens up. Yeah. I'm guessing there'll be a lot of draws early on, but you never know. Yeah, you never know. Okay, so one more question on St. Louis Chess Club. This is from Patreon supporter Paul Cantalupo. Um, He asks, I've never been to the St. Louis Chess Club, but would like to go there this year. What is the best time to go? What tournaments are there? How do I meet and play a Grandmaster? Well, um... Each month, there's a Grandmaster Simul from uh, the Grandmaster in Residence. So just check on the Chess Club homepage. The Simul is always posted. Okay. Yeah. And in terms of tournaments? In terms of tournaments, I highly recommend the U.S. Championship, which is coming up in this April as both the women's and the and the open section is going to be a big battle. Yeah, I can't wait for it. Uh that that one's also difficult to handicap if not if not quite as difficult to handicap as the candidates, but although the women's is is pretty hard to pick. It's it's hard to pick and um if you recall Crush and Zatonski didn't win the last past two years. Yes, because I've had the guests of the two women who did win have been guests on Perpetual yeah. Chess, uh, right. Nazi Pekizzi and Sabina Foyzer. Yeah, but that doesn't mean we know who win this time. No, it's, it's very, very hard to tell. Yeah. So yeah, it should be interesting. So to answer, getting back to Paul's question, so there's that in April and then the Sinkfield Cup is usually in August, correct? Yes. 
So. Also, I think in June or July, there's the U.S. Juniors and Ju U.S. Juniors uh, Championship. And if you want to see young upcoming talents play very unforgiving and uh, combative chess, I think that's a good idea to visit as well. Yeah, and you can catch a rising star such as uh, yeah. a Wonder Liang who's just been crushing the Pro Chess League. And uh, so many great players started there. Uh, Sam Sevian, Rui Feng Li, just to name a few. Yeah. Um, yeah, you really can't go wrong. And one thing I think we've talked about this a little b before, but it's a small community when you're there. I mean, it casts a large shadow in the chess world, but you really will get a chance to interact with people who are around. Maybe not Kasparov, but, the, the uh, you know, everywhere you go, you'll see grandmasters basically. So uh, definitely worth making the trip. And of course I still need to, uh, I still need to make it out there as well. But so Dennis, I want to transition subjects because when I sent out a note to the perpetual chess uh, Patreons and people who've donated on PayPal about uh, you coming on the show. I always mention a little bit about the person's background, and I mentioned that you have a master's in psychology, and I had read that you have an interest in the intersection of psychology and chess, and it, it turns out a lot of other people have an interest in that too, so I've got some good questions for you uh, related to that topic. Um, mm -hmm. So let's see, which one should I read first? Uh, uh, just to clarify, I only have a BA at the moment. So. Oh, really? Are you still? Are you? Because yeah, I read an interview f where you were pursuing it. Are you? Yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, I was doing it, but um, at the moment, I just have the BA. So. Okay. Um, so, question from Sanat Singhai: uh, How do you mentally prepare yourself before games and stay focused during the game? Um, I am a time pressure addict and seemingly can't tolerate my opponent having less time than me. Is there a way to eliminate or curb the psychological barrier which extends even beyond chess? Well, breathing techniques are great. Because if you hold your breath for like five seconds, keep it in, and then breathe out, that helps your system cool down a little bit. Also, my brother talked taught me that um, you should sit on your hands sometimes if you play too fast and your opponent's time trouble. Okay. I don't know if it always works, but it could potentially work. And what about just time management generally? I mean, because if you're a time pressure addict, that means he may, Sanat may, and I have this problem, may have trouble pulling the trigger on making a move. Do you have any advice on that? Well, it's difficult um, I really don't have a uh, real answer for that. Because, okay. Uh, well, there's one way I, I can propose is uh, choose critical positions. And if you feel the like you can build it up in three sections saying that there'll be like three critical moments and you make the critical choices and you decide that every other move I will only spend five minutes. Yeah, that's a really good insight. And it's funny because I've, I've come to the same conclusion. There's You spend so many... So often I and other people will burn a lot of time on a move that basically is not so likely to impact the r result of your game. 
that greatly. So I've tried to work it into my sort of conscious mind when I'm playing to be aware of asking myself, is this a critical moment or is this not a critical moment? And there have been times when I'm playing in the past year or so where even when I realize it's not a critical moment, I still just can't pull the trigger. I just can't make the actual move, even though my conscious mind knows this is not out of all the opportunities to spend your time. This is not the best use of it. I think nothing comes without sacrifices. So if you want to play quicker, it will ruin the quality of the game a little bit. But on the other hand, hand you'll on the other hand you'll gain time. Yeah. And one piece of advice I'm privileged to get to talk to so many great players like you and the one one piece of advice that really resonated with me that I try to remind myself is that when when Sam Shanklin was on and we talked about time trouble, he said that uh, ultimately you you need to learn to be okay with uncertainty. You need to reach a point where you say, okay, I'm, I'm j- I just don't know what the best move is, but I, I have to move. Yeah, that's one of the greatest things I heard. You have to be very comfortable with uncertainty. And I think that's kind of the thing that life and chess is about, being uncomfortable with the uncertain. Yes, exactly. One of one of the great uh, lessons that can be applied away from chess. And uh, as Sanat mentioned in his question, these psychological barriers often do extend beyond chess. And I, for example, as my wife will attest, um, can be indecisive when ordering at a restaurant and stuff like that as well, in addition to being a bit of a time trouble addict. Um, okay, more, more chess psychology questions. This one's from Ashish Mukherjee. Ashish, who is so desperate for me to pronounce his name correctly that he's spelling mm-hmm. it phonetically now. Okay. So <laughs> before I reached out to you, we had been talking, I had been talking with Ashish about uh, the, we were talking about sp- chess and psychology, and he was saying it would be interesting to get a chess psychologist on. And I wasn't sure if, I'm sure that some of the top players have coaches that help them with these things, but mm-hmm. I don't know of one who's like out there advertising their services. I know that this is something that you mentioned you might have interest in doing. Do you know of anyone who does this for a living? I don't think so. I think this is a new thing. It's not out there yet. Yeah, because as a former poker player, there's you know a handful of poker performance coaches who've managed to build careers out of talking about the emotional issues that come with uncertainty winning and losing money uh based on things that happen that don't necessarily have to do with the quality of your decisions uh, and in trading there's also lots of performance coaches but in chess i think now with the scale it's reaching as a business i would expect that someone might be able to to really become an expert on this field um so it would be if there's anyone out there uh give me a shout but uh, but getting back to ashish's question here it is as an elite chess competitor and sports psychologist, what is your advice to help chess players overcome pre-game nerves? Play more. Get, get used to playing. And uh, in fact, I wanted to quote, actually not quote, but uh, mention that Carlsen became good because he played so much chess against great players. And as humans, we get used to uh, conditions. And if you play a lot, you'll get used to it and you'll lose those nerves along the way. 
Okay, good advice. And I'm guessing that the breathing techniques that you mentioned earlier would also be useful as a sort of pregame ritual. Yes, of course. Uh, Some people, I'm kind of speaking out of turn here, but a lot of people in other fields have had success with meditation uh, and helping helping quiet the mind and deal with nerves. So lots of avenues to pursue, Ashish, but you just have to find what works for you. With meditation, I'm not sure, and I, I don't want to make a joke out of it, but we've seen Cousin fall asleep in a world championship match. So what does that have to do with meditation? Well, you can't be too relaxed. Okay. Yeah, that's true. I mean, but that's amazing. And it it was also underscored by the heart rate monitors that they had on he and Nakamura in the chess 960 match that the fact that he can be that relaxed while he's playing, I think is a huge competitive advantage. Yeah, I mean, the main point is, as Shanklin said, and I totally agree, is to uh, be comfortable with uncertainty and just enjoy the moment, enjoy, relish the stress of the game. Yeah. And I think, and I think what Cousin does best, that he loves the moment of stress. That's the good kind of stress, which actually exists. He enjoys the moment of the competition. That's why he's so comfortable in, the, in playing in these high competitive situations. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. Okay, one more chess psychology question. This one from Tyron Price. He says, we hear a lot about training through study and about staying in good physical condition. How does one prepare for good mental psychological condition? And this is pretty related uh, to the prior question. Stress and anxiety play a big part in performance over the board. Any tips on how to develop and use grit, especially in dealing with over the board disappointments, like realizing you've blundered from a winning position to a worse position or as or when you are winning but now must fight for a draw with only a thread of hope on which to hang? Well, you have to move on. And, uh, and I guess that's also, again, this life and chess connects kind of situation. You realize in the past you made mistakes. You can go back. There's no time traveling I know of. Um, you have to stay in the moment and try to fight for what you have left. That's all you can do. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, definitely not a good use of your ticking time to think back on what was, but it can definitely be hard to, to reframe. That's something that the great players are really noticeably good at doing. I mean, if you notice, Nakamura always says, what it is, it is. That basically means. I play good moves, and if I make mistakes, I move on and try to make more good moves. Right. Okay, so this is a rich topic that we could spend uh, lots of time on. So what... But I've got a long list of topics to get to, but just out of curiosity, what got you interested in psychology initially, Dennis? Well, I I realized that... um, I think first I've got into yoga... And it calmed me down. And then slowly I learned more about life, philosophy, and that's strongly related to psychology. And that's how I uh, got to the field of psychology. So somewhat related to chess psychology, Dennis, I read an interview with you uh, where you mentioned that you you said chess is a mixed martial art. Mm -hmm. So... 
Could you elaborate on that? I wasn't sure. Like, I found that interesting, but I wasn't sure what you meant by it. Well, it's a one-on-one battle. You'll have to defeat your opponent. So if you have a lot of confidence, you're basically taking the confidence of your opponent. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be ethical. And, uh, and that's actually related to the mixed martial arts. When you see, like, uh, kickboxing or these Eastern uh, arts, you see the huge respect for the opponent. And I think even in chess, you can show that your way of thinking is superior to your opponent without trying to destroy your opponent's ego. That's In that way, I felt it's like a mixed martial art. Okay, although some opponents have been known to try to destroy their opponent's ego. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. But I do believe that uh, we should strictly concentrate on the board. We shouldn't be unethical if possible. Oh, yeah, I agree 100%. And I think that the chess world generally is making strides in this regard. Yeah. Um, so, Dennis, before we started recording, and we, we've talked about how the U.S. champs and the women's champs are coming up, you, you mentioned that you have uh, some opinions on uh, productive changes that could be made in the women's chess world. So, uh, what, what can we do? Well, I was thinking about um, how people became very good at chess, uh, for example, prodigies. Well, the fact is that they played a lot of chess. And uh, Carlsen, for example, played a lot and played a lot against very good opposition. And if I, com- uh, and if I compare uh, the boy prodigies with the girl prodigies, the difference is uh, little boys, they play more up and they're trying to play more against the higher grain, and that's how they get better very quickly. For example, Carlsen traveled around Europe to get stronger opposition and played more chess than anyone else. And I think one of the basic premise to become good at this game is to play a lot. And I don't think that uh, girl and women have enough tournaments to grow as a player. So do you think that there still should be women's events? Like, do you think that they're functioning as a deterrent from women playing in men's events? Well, I think we should have both. As we have open tournaments where men and women could play, there should be like women international uh, events where they can play against each other. Because a lot of times you have to grow exponent. You have to grow gradually. So if I'm a 2200, I need 2300 opposition. And this is how I grew myself. I first played as a 2200 against 2300. Then as I reached 2300, I could compete with 2400. Now the big problem with playing in opens immediately. When I was a 2200 playing a 2500, I wouldn't understand why they beat me at all. So I feel the need to give the girls and women the chance to grow gradually. Okay, but 
when they have separate women's events uh, mm-hmm. at a youth level, isn't mm-hmm. that kind of what's happening? Uh, what is happening? Well, like when you have a tournament, for example, the World Youth, where you have the boys and the girls section, when mm-hmm. the girls do play in that event, they're mostly playing people pretty close to their level, or much more so than they would be in a mixed field. So doesn't that uh, achieve the aim that you're mentioning? Well, it doesn't really, because um, whenever you're playing um, your junior championship, for example, you have around the same ratings, right? Yes. Now, that's why I'm kind of proposing and hoping for more international events like uh, IM and GM tournaments, like the ones they're having and had at the St. Louis Chess Club, where women and girls have the chance to compete with people who have like a hundred points higher rated, okay, or a, a little bit more rated than they are at the moment. Okay, yeah, and you mentioned that they just recently had an IM event and a GM event, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, well, I think maybe they didn't end up winning, but uh, the women in that event had a very strong showing. Uh, they uh, they played. Brilliantly. In fact, shout out to Tatev Abrahamian for becoming second in that tournament. Yeah, she did great. I was rooting for her. I mean, she was. it looked great early on. It looked like she might even get a GM norm, but still a very strong showing and something to build on. I know she's heading to Iceland pretty soon, as are some other of our listeners and former guests. Um, and I still have to mention that uh, she wasn't the only one. Uh, the girl from Greece. Um, yeah, unfortunately. Sorry, do you remember her name? Yeah, her name is Savrula Tsulukidu. Yeah, and um, she did incredible. She did incredible, and in fact, I saw some moves she played that were Judith-like. Okay, so a name to watch for our listeners. Sorry, can you say the name one more time? Um, Stavrula Tsulukidu. Okay, so young Greece t- Greek talent to keep an eye on. Uh, um, so I get what you're saying about how this would help people improve and, uh, young improving girls and women in particular, but it's one of those things that strikes me as easier said than done. Um, I feel like it's, it takes so much to organize a chess tournament as it is. And you're proposing not so much an alteration in how they do things, but just additional events, right? Yes, and I think it's very important to get the chance to grow. Um, just like in this tournament that I mentioned, they're not not far behind the average rating, and they have like room to grow as a player. And I think that's kind of the main goal. Yeah, and I know... Um as women get stronger, they do tend to focus more on men's events, or I, I shouldn't call them men's events, on open events. But yeah, it would be good all along to just push yourself by playing people slightly stronger. Um, so yeah, hopefully someone can figure out a way to get this implemented. Um, okay, so I also, Dennis, you come from a place with a rich chess history, uh, the great country of Hungary. And we've, I've had Judith Polgar and Anna Rudolph, some 
prominent Hungarian players and now you. So for those who, but we haven't talked even with them that broadly about the general tradition of chess because obviously the Polgars are kind of unique in their own right. So what was your um, introduction to chess like and how, uh, what were the opportunities like to compete growing up in Hungary? Well, uh, I was introduced to chess by my brother, my eldest brother. And in fact, the way I actually discovered chess, because I didn't find my brother when I was like five, six year old. And then I entered his room and I saw a guy teaching him something. And I was asking, what is this guy doing with my brother? And they said, oh, it's a chess lecture. He's preparing for the junior championship. Hmm. And they wanted me to come closer, and I wouldn't. And a few years later, I would be playing chess. Funny. I didn't know that your brother was also a, a competitive chess player. Yeah, he was um, 2,400 in his uh, height. And he was an IM level, but then he became a lawyer later. Okay. And is he still in Hungary? Yeah, he is. Okay. Um, and did you have... So once you took an interest and showed some ability, what sort of training would you, were you exposed to? I was trained by the famous trainer, uh, Horvath Josef, uh, and uh, he was an Olympian. And he taught me a lot about um, Hungarian chess tradition, how to play the openings, how to play properly. Also, he introduced me to chess psychology. Ah, so therein lies the root of the interest. Did he impart anything about chess psychology to you? Well, he kind of talked about the fact that that it's tough for your opponent as well. So you have to pay attention to how your opponents react to you. Like physically? Um, or uh, what, yeah, what you... physically, how, how they uh, greet you, how do they interact with you in this moment when they're playing chess against you. Interesting. Can you think of any times where that advice came in handy, where you sort of picked up something from your opponent where you saw felt that they were uncomfortable? Well, not particularly um, the nonverbal behavior, but when he told me that one of the players was a greedy person, he advised me to go into lines where he would gra- could get the opportunity to grab some stuff. And I did. And I won in like 24 moves against that grandmaster. Oh, funny. That's, that's great, uh, great advice. And yeah, it shows why if you're preparing for someone, it helps to look at their whole games and not just see what opening they play, but try to, try to learn their tendencies. Yeah. So coming back to, um, if I can, to of course. the chess, chess culture of Hungary. Well, obviously we have an Olympic team that beat the Soviet champions in Buenos Aires, 1976. Oh, 78? Not sure. I think 1978, yeah. And, uh, and from then on, Hungarian chess was booming. 
in fact, um, we were first and second a lot of times in uh, international team events from then on, from the late 70s. But then it kind of dropped back a little bit until the Polgar sister, until the Polgar sisters, Almashi and uh, Peter Leko. Mm-hmm. And now Richard Rapport. And now Richard Rapport, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's an incredible chess tradition, and uh, you know they've got the norm, the f- famous norm events that causes uh, those seeking titles to pass through Hungary pass through Budapest. Um, yeah, it's a great city with a rich tradition. And you mentioned in uh, an interview that uh, Julius Sachs, did I, how did I do with his name? Well, G- Gulia? Uh, oh. sorry, sorry, I'll let you say it. Go ahead. Gula uh, Sachs. So he's a hero of yours? Yeah, he is. Yeah. And for many of us. So what was it about him that made him um, so admirable? Well, for one, he was actually my teammate at the um, Hungarian uh, team championship. So I get to meet him regularly. And I could talk a lot about these candidates and zonal events from the past. And that was just a great thing to talk with the legend himself. He talked about Geller and... um, how he smoked constantly while playing against him. <laughs> so Geller smoked? Geller smoked. Okay. Constantly. Yeah, it's always jarring to see the old pictures of uh, like the great players with like a cigarette lit up in the middle of the game. Yeah. And also, it was fun to meet the human side of Sox because... He was an avid sports fan like I was, and we often watched water polo games together. And um, we both rooted for Washash, and that was just great. Funny. So you've got some diverse sports interests. You're into, so you mentioned marathons, water polo. Mm -hmm. I know you're you're a tennis fan. Yeah, I'm a big Nadal fan, to be honest. Yeah, he's, um, he's amazing, and... Seems seems like a good representative as well, a good guy. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the arch nemesis of my friends because they all love Federer. Huh. So. But at least it's a good topic to talk about. Yeah, them. yeah. It's um hard to go wrong with those two. Yeah. So in terms of your chess improvement, Dennis, so you worked with a a trainer, uh, what, what else helped you along? Like, what do you look to do with your students to help them get better? What do you think the most important things for people to focus on are? I think because games are getting longer and games are getting more important. So end game studies and tactics are the most important things. And I study them all the time and I show my students those as well. Any uh, book recommendations, whether related to that or otherwise? Well, obviously the Dvoretsky books. I like the Yusupov books as well on uh, end games. Okay, and, and you parts. mentioned that you use this stuff for your own studies. Um, what's your current? Like, I know that I know that you 
take part in a lot of these events in St. Louis. What's your current chess ambition? How's your game coming along? Well, I, to be honest, I'm not, I didn't do great at uh, the previous event, but I hope to come back strong. So I'm ambitious. I always was ambitious. And, um, and I feel if I can work on my mistakes, I can improve. And I think everyone can follow that advice. For sure. So was there a particular type of mistake you highlighted from this recent tournament or was it kind of all over the map? Well, I played um, openings that I shouldn't have. Sometimes I got overtly creative, like I made a novelty against Akshay Chandra move four, which is a great thing to do. That's hard to do. Which is a great thing. What were the moves? What were the first four moves? Yeah, it's e4, e5, bishop c4, knight f6, d3, knight c6, a4. (laughs) That'll do it. (laughs) That's funny. But okay, a lot of people have been playing that a4 stuff in the Italian, so. Yeah, actually, that kind of pissed me off a little bit because I had that idea right before Anand played it against, um, I think, Aronian or Karyakin. And. That's why I think everyone should follow Korchnoi's advice on novelties. If you have it, if you have the opportunity, play it. Smoke them if you got them, another way yep. to put them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, that's funny. That makes sense. So a little bit of disappointing. Uh, so getting back to your story, so you played this mm-hmm. novelty, and then what, what happened from there against Akshat? Well, then I got overtly creative, I played, he castled, I mean, played bishop c5, I played bishop g5, and in the subsequent moves, I put my knight on d2, and the other knight not on f3, but on e2, which is quite weird, and not good, that's the problem. (laughs) Yeah, it's good to avoid not good moves, it's a big, big secret of chess. Yeah, but I mean, creative chess has this downfall. Either it works perfectly or it backfires badly. Right. Yeah, so and if your move might be okay, but uh, it's just not good enough to be played, and well, and then Chandra played a beautiful game and he outplayed me. Okay, so back to the lab. Yeah. So, do you know what your next tournament is? Um. Most probably, I'm going to play in um, mid-america open okay where where and when is that i think it's in a month okay and is it in st louis it's in st louis yes okay yeah it must be nice that you probably don't have to travel too much to stay relatively sharp and how generally are you liking life in the states and in st louis Mm, i like it because Hungarian mentality and uh, American mentality, American mentality is polar opposites. Right. Um, We usually share our emotions within family. In America, you share your emotions with everyone. Huh. And you prefer that. That's how I felt as a Hungarian. And you prefer that? Yes, I do prefer that because... As science showed, if you 
even pretend to be happy, you'll be happier than if you're sad all the time. <laughs> right, yeah, the placebo effect. Exactly. Also, they uh, found that if I put a pencil in your mouth and that would make you smile, you'll smile in five minutes. Interesting. Huh, yeah, there's so many interesting psycho psychological studies. We might have to do a separate show on that. Um, but for, for this show, I just have one or two more questions, Dennis. Mm -hmm. So this is from Chris Wainscott, who I have gathered follows you on Facebook. So Chris says, okay, it's not a chess question, but where do you get your appreciation for music from? I've seen some fascinating posts on Facebook regarding music from you. Well, my dad loved Bob Dylan. Nice. And, and he actually is a musician slash comedian. So I've got the chance to listen to 60s to the 90s music. So that's where my appreciation is from. And does your, I gather your dad speaks English? Uh, yeah, he speaks English, not as fluently as I do, but uh, he understands English, yeah. Because it's interesting to me that of all the classic uh, musicians, that it would be Dylan, because to me, I, I'm a fan of Dylan, but he's so, so much of uh, his appeal comes from the lyrics. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't expect him to be as popular with people who weren't, totally fluent in English. Well, as he was a musician, he also translated or attempted to translate these songs. Oh, okay. And that like would make it even more rewarding, I would guess, if you're doing the translating yourself. Yeah. And uh, also, the demeanor of Bob Dylan appealed to him greatly. Yeah. He loved his attitude towards uh, critics. Yeah. And Did you see uh, Don't Look Back? Oh, I didn't. Oh, you, sh you have to see it. It's a classic documentary about Bob Dylan on tour in the late 60s. But a lot of it is about, it shows footage of him interacting with reporters, but also some music clips. It's a classic rock documentary. Um, and Chris had another half to his question that's actually chess related. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is a good one. Is it true you once said you wanted to write a chess book called My, My 100 Worst Losses? Well, I think that's a booby trap. I'll, <laughs> I'll try to avoid that. <laughs> oh man! Okay. Wow. Well, I'll. Okay. So I don't know. I don't know anything about this, but I'll just say it's a great idea. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, well, I, I don't know because mm, it works if you're like a super GM. And if there's some substance to it. But, you know, if you just blunder something... Yeah, that's, that's true. You don't learn anything from that. Yeah, that's true. But, so, okay, maybe not a grand... It may not be a grandmaster who needs to write that book. Because I can just tell you that from, from my perspective as someone who teaches a lot of mm -hmm. kids who aren't very advanced at chess, mm -hmm. it takes some heavy lifting to get them to understand that losing is okay and that it's an indispensable part of chess. So I think reframing uh, losing generally as some, something to be praised and celebrated could be quite helpful for the younger generation. So it may actually not be a book that a grandmaster needs to write, but just like, you know, club-level player who just says, okay, I lost this game because of this, I lost this game because of that, and so on and so forth. Your games, I agree. I mean, if they're blunders... 
uh, for you, that's not that useful. But maybe for your audience, depending on who your audience was, it could be a useful book. I think it's a self-write book, which will be like an open book that you can write your be best worst games ever. Yeah. Because I agree with you, uh, those who never fail never succeed. For sure. So out of all your roles in the chess world, Dennis, um, you've done some interviews on YouTube. You've done some lectures. I mean, you've done a lot of lectures. Uh, I'm guessing you've done some one-on-one -on -one lessons as well. And then you're a competitor. Do, do you have a favorite amongst them? I still love playing, but I also love lecturing because I think if, if you know something, try to share it because others might come up with great ideas just because you share the thought. In fact, I listened to many interviews. Specifically, I learned a lot from Baryev. Just talking about chess, I gained rating points. Interesting. Was it like at a tournament or where? Well, I, I just followed him uh, on the internet. Whenever he gave an interview, I read it. Okay. Because I knew whatever he says, there's some great ideas hidden there. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll check that out for sure. That's interesting advice. Um, okay. So, Dennis, um, I think I'm out of questions. Do you have anything else you wanted to talk about before I let you go? Well, definitely, I think April is coming up, so do visit uh, the St. Louis Chess Club for the U.S. Championships because there'll be plenty of online and offline um, commentary. Like, even if you just visit, there will be a place where you can watch the games and they're going to commentate it offline as well. So, not just the Yasser... Uh, and Jen Shahadi lecture you can watch online, but you can also watch Hess, Ramirez, or Akobian uh, giving their penny and their advice or their thoughts about the games that were just played. Yeah, it sounds great. And will you be? Will you have any formal capacity there, or will you just be observing as a fan? Probably, I'll be there uh, helping out, but. Um, Mostly absorbing. Great. Yeah, and I look forward to it. It should be interesting. I mean, obviously, with uh, yeah. Nakamura so and uh, Caruana at the top and then a lot of uh, young up-and-comers, like Sam Sevian's in it, right? Yeah, Sam Sevian's in it. And Wonder Liang. So, yeah, it should be pretty interesting. And I, I wonder myself, when will be the first breakthrough for one of these youngsters um, and winning it? Yeah, I think the time is coming. The time is coming closer. Interesting. Yeah, that's something fun to watch for. Okay, so we've got the candidates and then the U.S. Championship. It's a uh, booming days for uh, for chess fans. Uh, so, Dennis, thanks a lot for coming on. Um, what's the best way for people to reach you? Uh, the best way to reach me, it's possible to find me on Twitter, Grandmaster G4. Also. Um, DennisVorsch at gmail.com is okay. my email address. Great. I will include those in the show notes and I thank you again for joining us um, and hopefully I'll make, it, make my way out to St. Louis and meet you in person sometime relatively soon. It was my pleasure. Thank you. 
thanks to everyone who supports Perpetual Chess. I spend about five hours a week on each episode, and even though I love doing the show, it can be hard to find the time. Without the financial support of the chess community, Perpetual Chess would not be possible. Special shout out goes to my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Partners, and I have finally updated the list. You guys are Adam Vrancourge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Chad Hilton, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Wood, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Gary Andrews, Greg Shahadi, James Bonastasia, Jason Dunbar, Jeffrey Martello, Jen Shahadi, Jennifer Valens, Jen Scream, John Fernandez, Johnny McMenamin, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Lorraine Dore, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Lazorchek, Tatyav Abrahamian, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Victor Vrankulj, Zhao Cheng, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, guys. I'll catch you guys next week with another episode. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.